0: Everyone, and welcome to the Warton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Daniel Yu, founder and CEO of SocoWatch, a Kenyan platform revolutionizing access to essential goods and services by connecting small shops across East Africa to the digital economy and providing them with access to credit. Prior to founding SocoWatch, Daniel worked as a software developer and chief technical officer for several early stage startups in the U.S. and attended the University of Chicago, where he focused on international studies and linguistics. Through his work with SocoWatch, Daniel has received international recognition as the winner of the Prince of Wales Young Entrepreneur Prize, designation by the White House as an emerging global entrepreneur, and as one of the Forbes 30 under 30 social entrepreneurs. Daniel has worked in or traveled to over 60 countries and speaks Mandarin, Swahili, Portuguese, Spanish, Arabic, Cantonese, and if that wasn't enough, French as well. And now, please join me in a fascinating conversation with the multi-talented Daniel Yu. Well, Daniel, thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're very excited to have you here. Can we start by you telling us a little about yourself and your personal background? Thanks for having me.
1: I am the founder and global CEO of SocoWatch. Just a bit about me personally, I am originally from the US, grew up in California, uh, but uh, a lot of different interests. In, In college, I actually studied international relations, linguistics, and computer science. So with that kind of variety of things, I was always interested in technology and international business. And that actually led to the founding idea behind Watch, which came actually when I was living in
0: Egypt. So how did you find yourself in Egypt and how did that take you all the way to Kenya?
1: For sure, so I was in Egypt actually learning Arabic at the time and uh, the idea came when I was living in a village and I got to know some of the shopkeepers there and saw the specific challenges that they had around managing their stores, managing their inventory, And I had done some work actually with SMS notifications before. And I saw that while these shops didn't have POS systems, they didn't have computers, barcode scanners, everybody at least had a basic mobile phone. And so the idea came to mind to use a two-way text message-based system to help shops manage their orders and connect to suppliers. And so I ended up taking that idea back with me to the U.S., I was actually still in school at the time. I went to the the University of Chicago for undergrad, and ended up entering this business plan competition, where we ended up winning a prize and some funding. And I was so excited about the idea, and of course believed in the potential. So I ended up dropping out of school and then reaching out to a variety of organizations that we could potentially pilot with. And so how I ended up in Kenya was ended up getting connected with a company out here, a consumer goods company that was really interested in what we were doing. And after a couple of calls, they basically said, hey, if you come to Kenya, we'll be the first people to try it out. So a couple of weeks later, got on my first flight and made
0: it out here. Sounds easy. Now I'm kidding. Obviously, uh, how did you, manage your initial operations, right? I mean, you get to Kenya and you, I imagine you don't know a lot of people. You maybe have a couple of connections uh, here and there, but you're brand new in the country. How do you start opening doors for yourself? Yeah,
1: so at the beginning, it was really just, I was there to learn. So I spent the first several months, more or less embedding myself with this company to understand their supply chain, their route to market, what was going on, with their current gaps at the same time i was also building out and developing the the prototype the platform that we were using and of course you know none of this would have been possible without the local team members the local partners that i ultimately ended up working with to really kind of fill in my limited knowledge on what was happening in the market and from there we were able to actually get a pilot off the ground with this company interestingly enough the first pilot was actually a complete failure so we ended up at first believing that we could more or less just take a platform only approach to facilitating distribution and overseeing the ordering and monitoring of small shops and so really the challenge that the manufacturer in this case was facing was you have thousands upon thousands of small mom-and-pop stores who sell their product but There's no way to monitor them. There's no way to know which of the shops need the product and how much they need when they need it. And so our initial technology, what we built out was was more or less just that digital layer, that platform for monitoring and allowing shops to order products when they needed them. And our thinking was, hey, as long as we have that platform, the distributor who works with this manufacturer can just monitor that and deliver the goods when they get ordered. Now, what ended up happening was the shopkeepers would order. They would place orders specifically through this SMS, this text messaging-based system that we built out. But then the distributor who was supposed to deliver the orders would ignore most of them. So you end up in the situation where shops are ordering, but they're not actually getting the deliveries. And it took us a little while to figure out what was going on. But basically it turned out that the distributor was not interested in delivering the small order quantities that the shops were ordering for. And this kind of opened up a second problem on top of that initial problem that we envisioned, which was primarily just an information gap, right? It was just a, if you expose the issue, then things will magically sort themselves out, right? And, and everybody will be able to connect and value will be created. That's not how it actually happened, right? We realized, oh, yes, you, it's, a, it's a challenge to figure out what people need, and where. But even if you figure that out, that doesn't solve the problem of actually getting it there because the guys who are already in place, the existing infrastructure, the existing players in the market don't actually want to address that problem. They're not set up to deal with that particular market issue. And so this then led us to take a step back and kind of think through, okay, if the distributor is not going to deliver the orders, who is going to deliver them? And eventually, we came to the conclusion that hey, maybe it would be worth a shot if we actually tried delivering this stuff as well. So we then got involved with this manufacturer and agreed to a pilot with them where we would actually arrange and and organize the deliveries ourselves to these shops. And I mean, literally, the the first iteration of this was a quote-unquote warehouse, which was an apartment bedroom and delivery people on foot with backpacks who were delivering goods to shops when they sent us the text message. So it was you know, pretty much as lean and, uh, and as dirty as it gets. And from there, though, we, we actually were able to demonstrate that by pairing our own ordering and delivering capabilities, we were, in fact, able to increase this company's sales very significantly, I believe about 30% in the particular neighborhood that we're working in. And so actually, once we figured that out, we realized that, you know, yeah, this is still, you know, kind of quite simplistic, but as we scale this up, this actually makes sense. And if you calculate out the unit economics and all that, this is something that can absolutely be profitable. And so from there, we then started working with other manufacturers, getting them involved, layering in these additional products. At the same time, we were also figuring out how to actually properly do logistics, warehousing, all of that. So it took a bit of time. Uh, but then once we got to the point, you know, I would say like early 2018, that's when things really started to click. And then from there, you know, it's pretty much just been, just been off to the races. So I think if you actually look at our growth, our monthly volumes, monthly sales volumes over the past two years, we're up about 27X or something like
0: that. That's impressive. That's impressive. So sounds like by focusing on the tail of, the products being sold by the distributor, you're actually to to solve this uh, last mile delivery problem. But also how about uh, on the payment front? I understand you've also integrated payment capabilities. When did you decide to do that? I mean, basically what we've become is
1: a full stack, fully integrated e-commerce company with integrated logistics, but also financial services now. And so really what this means is a shop today can order rice, soap, toilet paper, any of these essential goods is what we focus on. And we will deliver those products free of charge to their shop on average in two hours. So you can have a shop in the middle of Nairobi in you know, one of the poorest neighborhoods in the slums, and we're delivering to them in two hours free of charge. So that capability, that whole side of the business was something that you know we spent most of that of those years kind of figuring out. Now, more recently, so in the past year or so, we've started to actually now take that platform of, okay, we've got about 15,000 shops in four different countries, nine different cities in East Africa who order from us on an active basis. And we know what their volumes are, right? They order on average $50, $100 every week from us. And so what we're able to do is now actually understand, you know, with real kind of transactional data, what the financial needs are of these shops. And so about a year ago, we launched this credit program, where what we're basically doing is extending credit lines to stores to buy goods from us to then pay back later. So this is this is quite critical, because most of these shops, they're not banked, they don't have access to loans, to lines of credit, to financial services elsewhere. And so for us stepping into that, actually providing them with this credit line is quite a game changer for their business. And and it shows up in the results. I mean, the average shop, once they get access to this credit program, increases their order volume with us by about double. On the back of that, we've also started offering other services. For example, we started doing smartphone financing. So a lot of our shops, they still order through the text message. They don't yet have the app. They don't have a smartphone. And that's mostly because they can't afford the upfront cost of the phone. So what we've done is we've stepped in and basically offered them a affordable payment plan to get their first smartphone. And what we do is we pre-install our app. We show them how to use it. So we become literally the first app they ever use. And we see kind of bump in the order volume as a result of that as well. We're even starting to experiment with some insurance, offering kind of micro health insurance to customers as a result of, of the relationship that we already have with them as one of our e-commerce customers. So I think ultimately now for us at SokoWatch, our vision is to be the number one partner for unlocking the growth potential of informal businesses across Africa, whatever goods or services they may need, right? So if it's, they need a new brand of soap, we'll be able to deliver that to them. If they need a loan, we'll be able to channel provide them with their needs there. If it's another financial service, if it's a tool, if it's a technology, because we have this network of shops, because we have the data, because we have the relationship, we understand these stores the best and we'll be able to provide them with the best goods, the best services at the lowest cost. That
0: makes a lot of sense. And, and so... You you mentioned this, you know them better than anyone. You know their credit worthiness. What percentage of your customers or of your shops have qualified for credit lines?
1: So right now in Kenya, which is the market where we started the credit program in and actually still the only country that we have it in, though we're about to launch it. in in another country as well. Right now in Kenya, about 12% of our our order volume comes in through the credit orders. So that's something that we're constantly kind of building on and increasing. And actually interesting, you know, even currently right now during the COVID-19 crisis, we're still actually growing our credit portfolio here because we actually haven't seen a negative impact on the performance. And I think a lot of that has to do with the structure of this, which is it's all happening in kind. So it's, it's a line of credit that's only available for use on our platform, and that means that it's coming in through the goods. So it's, it's heavily de-risked versus any other type of micro-lending that other players might be doing. And the fact that we already know these customers, we have that existing logistics network that literally comes face-to-face with them every week when they're delivering products, I think also just adds to the strength of the relationship that we have with them and really kind of helps us grow this moving forward. Uh, but yeah, we're still kind of strongly focused on how we can continue to push volumes uh, more and more uh, through our financial services.
0: I think a little bit uh, back to the very beginning, how did you approach building the technology, right? And, and how did you hire your initial team? Uh, curious to know if you focused only on the local market for lo- local talent, or do you have a distributed international team? Good question. So on the technology
1: side, I was the first developer for the team. Uh, so until relatively recently, I was basically our CTO, our chief product officer. You know, I was, I was overseeing directly pretty much all that stuff myself. Of course, I, I wasn't the only one doing it. And now uh, I'm very proud to say that we have a all Kenyan engineering team, over a dozen engineers based here in Nairobi and actually our entire team is based in East Africa. We have not set up or hired anybody elsewhere to support the team. And, and I think for me, this really gets back to certainly, certainly something that I value really highly, which is that localization and that intimate market knowledge with what's going on. Because I think it's, it's very different building technology, building systems for users in Africa. The, especially within the segment that, that we're working on, which is the mass market, the, the kind of bulk of the pyramid. And so for, for what we're doing, if you're not here and you don't actually see how USSD works, you don't actually see how m transactions are conducted, you don't see how people are constantly switching on and off their data all day long. These are things that you're just not going to design for, and that's really critical if you're going to be actually building technology for, for users in this
0: market. How big is the team today?
1: In total, it's close to 200 people.
0: Wow. And how do you manage to maintain your initial culture and then keep a robust pipeline of, of people that align with uh, the company values? Great question, great question.
1: So I, I think it comes back to, you know, once you get outside of that initial two-room team, right, when, when everything is just kind of naturally in sync and, and the, the feeling that you have for each other is just pretty much unspoken and, and universal. Once you get to the point where you have dozens and now you know, hundreds of people on the team, and especially now because we're split across nine different cities, four different countries, it is actually really important, I find, to be explicit with what the culture is and what the values are. And this doesn't mean it should be artificial. You know, all of this should be rooted in what already happens within the team. But you do have to be really clear and really outspoken about it because how are you going to maintain that? How is is everybody, how is each new additional marginal person who's joining the team today going to know what those values are if you're not actively promoting and and talking about them? And so for us, you know, we have four core values that, that we promote internally within the team. That is, number one, be an owner, and that for us is, number one, in the kind of metaphorical sense of, hey, if you see something that happens beyond your, your, your strictly delineated role, you're still expected to do something about it, right? If it's an idea you have, it's a problem you see, you should speak up, you should do something about it, make sure that's addressed for the overall well-being of the company. The second aspect of that is actually around literal ownership in the company, something that we have done, which from my knowledge, is actually quite unique as a company in East Africa. I'm not aware of anybody else who has done this here is we have literally given equity to every single person on the team all the way down to the receptionist. And a lot of people here don't necessarily fully grasp the value of it because it's not Silicon Valley, right? You know, people don't have friends or cousins that have gotten rich off of their stock options, right? From when Facebook went public. That, that's not the culture here. Um, and so, yes, if you come in and you say, hey, here's some stock options, you know, here's some equity, you know, you shouldn't be surprised when, when, when people, you know, don't necessarily think a whole lot about that. Um, however, you know, if we're truly kind of committed to building a, a prospering ecosystem here, we have to be giving people ownership, you know, not just people who understand who get it. Everybody who is a part of building the company should be getting that ownership. And we've done some unique things to even kind of promote that value. For example, in, a, in our last investment round, we were very lucky to actually be oversubscribed. We had, we had more demand uh, to invest than, than we as a company wanted to take in new equity. And so we were actually able to channel some of that to buy out the stock options of our early employees. So employees who got stock you know, a couple of years ago probably didn't think anything of it at the time. Collectively, were able to cash out hundreds of thousands of dollars, which you can be sure actually demonstrated to them and the rest of the team that this stuff is really worth something. Right, and and so that's something that we've been able to do that I'm I'm very proud of. The second value that we have is best idea wins, and this might be something that is you know obvious or, or or intuitive, but it actually is something from from a cultural perspective. You know, operating here that 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 can be a bit of a different different vibe for a lot of people. You know, unfortunately, I think the education system is very rote. It's very hierarchical. So most people they grow up and their classroom setting is just. Copy down what the teacher says. You know, don't question it, you know, don't talk back, don't contribute your own ideas, just, just do what you're told. And I think unfortunately that tends to translate a lot into the workplace as well, where you have people who a lot of companies, a lot of environments here are, are just do what the boss says. And for us, you know, especially kind of getting back to the question that you said earlier, how do we build this team? You know, how do we get that local knowledge, right? The way we do that is when everybody is contributing their ideas, right? When everybody is speaking about from their unique experience, what they believe the best solution is and whatever that best idea is, that's what we want to go with, right? Because I didn't grow up with a family that ran one of these shops in one of these communities, right? You know, that's not my background, right? But we have dozens of people on the team who do have that experience, right? We do have families who still run these shops today. And so if we're able to kind of get the best of everybody's experience then ultimately i believe we can build a better company third key value is unlock potential so this kind of goes back to you know our mission as a company which is unlocking the growth potential of these informal shops but it also of course is unlocking the potential of our people of our team and we see this happening you know every day with with the people that we hire with people that we promote you know if you look at our operations team, you know, our warehousing and our fleet team, and all that. You know, more than half of people on that team start off as delivery drivers, and they've been promoted up. You know, to some of them, you know, country manager positions, and that's not the type of Ford Mobility that's available for a lot of people. But it's something that we really pride ourselves on. You know, getting back to the idea of meritocracy as well. The the final final value that we have, which is related to the other things as well, is respect our family, and we we see that. Um, both in the kind of internal sense of respecting those differences, the fact that we're in four different countries, hundreds of people, you know, all of whom have different backgrounds, but then also the customers, right? And understanding that every customer comes from a different place, you know, has a different background, has different needs. And so we, we want to make sure that we're, we're constantly bringing those together. And so these are things that, you know, the way that we reinforce them is we talk about them, right? And I encourage all my team, all managers, all of that to always be relating back to these because these are core tenets of, why we exist, right? Why does SokWatch do what it does and and how does it do it? You know, it it comes back to these values.
0: Very interesting. And sounds like if you were founded, say in the States or in a different country, a lot of your call values will be the same, but you've also adjusted to your local reality, right? Can you talk a little bit about the ecosystem in Kenya, the entrepreneurial ecosystem? Uh, I know you're an important part of it. How have you seen it evolve over the last five years? I think the
1: startup ecosystem in East Africa and Africa overall is at a really exciting place right now. You know, fundamentally, we're in uncharted territory. There is no company for us to look up to. There's nobody to emulate. There's nobody to really see as a bright shining star of who to beat, at least not in the context of this geography. And so in a lot of ways, the companies that are growing up now are trailblazers. And as a result, there's a lot of things about that that are quite frustrating in terms of having to deal with challenges that nobody else has faced before and therefore can often be quite slow uh, in working through some of these issues and figuring these out yourself. But it's also quite exciting in the sense that it is very groundbreaking. I mean, nobody has done what we're doing now, certainly not in the geography that we're doing it. And so there is this really tight sense of community and camaraderie between all the companies that are figuring these things out. And I think you find this culture overall within the community, which is way more tight knit than certainly any other startup ecosystem that I've been part of elsewhere in the world.
0: Great. And do you have a relationship with, say, the government and and the regulator? We definitely do. Uh,
1: we, we definitely do have relationships with all the relevant stakeholders. So that, that's another really interesting thing is I think you end up with a, a much broader Rolodex than you would elsewhere in a company building just because there are all of these stakeholders who are also figuring it out as we're going along. And the best policy is always to be proactive in developing those relationships and, and, and driving those communications.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the COVID-19 crisis, super relevant to any company right now, but particularly early stage startups. Uh, you mentioned a little bit in an earlier question, but can you expand on how has this impacted not just Watch, but more importantly, your clients and the ecosystem?
1: So right now with the COVID-19 crisis, we're absolutely seeing a huge, huge impact, particularly on the economic side as a result of the restrictions that have been put in place to varying degrees across all the markets that we're in. One of the interesting things is because we're in four different countries, the countries have put in place different restrictions, which results in different effects. So for example, in Uganda and Rwanda, there was a very strict lockdown in place for the entirety of April that only got lifted a few weeks ago. And what we saw, not surprisingly, was a significant drop in the, the sales uh, and the demand from the shops that were living there, which was a reflection of the drop in purchasing power of those actual communities. And you know, thankfully, I think those governments loosened back up because the reality is there is no safety net, right? There is no unemployment insurance. You know, there's no stimulus checks that are going to go out to supporting people who live on $2 a day. And so when those people are unable to go out on the street and find work, people are going to start to go hungry. And, and that's where you know, we've been very concerned about the impact on the communities more broadly. And we've actually gotten involved with that on our side, innovating and trying to do our part. So one of the things that we've been successful in launching and, and, and we're actually uh, growing and, and rolling it out with additional organizations as we speak is actually a e-voucher program, which you can think of it basically like digital food stamps, where what we're doing is we partnered with organizations that work with vulnerable families and, and households in need. And what we're doing is, is actually sending them text messages, which contain unique codes that they're then able to go to nearby Soko Watch supplied stores with and actually redeem that code for $15 of essential goods. And what's great about this is this is assistance that's going directly, digitally, to families in need. So, you know, cut out any of the overhead, the corruption, the theft, or the loss that would happen with an actual physical food distribution network that government sets up or something like that. Uh, but at the same time, you're actually also helping the shop. You're helping the local business, the local shop, who, of course, are also being hugely impacted during this time. And so, With that, we're actually able to bring together for the first time, through our technology, consumers within the community. I think that starts to show the power of what we're doing in leveraging this network of tens of thousands of small stores, and ultimately, you know, potentially millions of individual people who rely on these stores to get their essential goods.
0: And how will this crisis impact Soko Watch's future plans? And then how do you envision the road ahead?
1: As far as the impact on our plans, it's actually been surprisingly minimal so far in the sense that we have been able to keep growing as a business. The fact that we supply essential goods is obviously a boon. There certainly have been some impacts, though. I think the, probably the, the biggest area that's been impacted is our expansion plans. So we did have plans to expand to a few new countries this year doesn't look like that will be happening just given the travel restrictions and all that. However, we still plan to get to those markets as soon as we can. So it's not as though we put them off forever. Great. Thank you for that.
0: Can you maybe help us with some reflections on you know, moving to a, a new country and starting a, a company? We have a, a, lot of, a lot of listeners who are aspiring founders and you know, we have a lot of international listeners. So You have a particularly interesting experience and background. Talk a little bit about this experience and then maybe some advice.
1: I think my biggest piece of advice, which mirrors, I guess, the path that I took with Sokawatch, is to just go there. For me, getting on the ground, immersing myself in the situation, in the circumstance that I was looking to work on was absolutely the best thing that I ever could have done and you know, it would have been impossible to, to build this business any other way. I, I know there's, there's a lot of hesitation sometimes to, to move halfway around the world or, or go to a different place. Um, obviously it's not for everyone, but if you are somebody who is looking to uh, maximize their impact in a different market, in my opinion, you have to be there.
0: Great, thank you. And, and before we go then, we have one last question and it's about your hobbies. You know, we, we like to hear about the, the personal side of our guests outside of the office, right? Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, your time outside of Soko Watch.
1: Sure, sure. So I would say I have probably two main things that I spend time on, in my, my limited time on outside of uh, staying on top of the business day to day. As I, uh, I think I alluded to earlier on, I'm a big fan of learning languages, and so I actually spent a decent amount of time doing that, practicing, picking up new things, studying vocabulary, grammar, all of that. I certainly love doing that, and, and it's something that's definitely very helpful for, for business and for what I do. So you know, since I came out here, I've learned Swahili. I'm working on learning Kenya Rwanda, a language in Rwanda, and uh, a few other things, but yeah, I would say the, the other thing that I spend time on, and, and this, is, this is my definitive side hustle, which is something that's uh, quite essential if you're, if you're going to become, you know truly, truly East African, which is I am actually in a band. Uh, so I am, I guess you could say, uh, professional in the, in the sense that we, we get paid to play these gigs, but I, I am in a 10-person funk band that plays all around town, supposedly. East Africa's best and only funk band, but uh, we, we do play around a lot, weddings, birthdays, just good times, you know, where we're, we're there to play. If you're looking for a funk band for uh, your celebration in East Africa anytime soon, definitely let me know.
0: The multi-talented Daniel Yu, thank you so much for joining us. It's been uh, fascinating, and you know, once, uh, once this is all over, you're always welcome to visit us on campus. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.